this as quick as possible. I had planned, I had already made it shorter, but I just want to mention one thing in passing, and that is we, we normally look like at sermon times or at church times as there's two phases, the worship phase and the, pre- the preaching, right? That, that's what we sometimes think in our mind, but really all of the service is, is a worship service, right? So this is what we call, when they're up there singing, we call that praise, but all of it is ultimately an act of worship. And so we try to not only integrate the songs, the readings, the preaching, but all of it should be leading us to a certain culmination. So today I'm going to take us through a passage, and then I'm going to spend a little time in before the offering and before communion digging a little deeper. So what we normally look at as a sermon here might seem a little short, but again, I want to expound, uh, I want to kind of integrate the sermon into three parts, if you will. And the, 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 you know, as we, I think we've already started with a lot of the readings uh, here with the sermon proper, if you will, and then with the offering and communion. I just want to tie every aspect into this topic of forgiveness. So Lord's Prayer, part six, uh, turn to Matthew six, and uh, let's, let's read, and we've been going through Luke, but we're going to look at Matthew today because he gives us a little different slant, a little different angle um, on this text. <clears throat> so he starts off here, in, uh, and I don't have the verses up there, so just uh, Matthew chapter 6, it's page 1116 if you have one of our Bibles. If you have a different Bible, it won't be that, that page. But it says this, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by men or to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you do your charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions like the heathen do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, we'll stop there. 
Um, so some heavy verses there, right? So a heavy challenge to us. There was a, uh, a man by the name of Thomas Lenacre. He was around on the period, right around the kind of pre-Reformation as it's starting to break out. He was a very uh, educated physician and linguist, knew the languages very well. So as the printing press started to break out, uh, they would even Erasmus, who was a, very, who was a, a, a top scholar of his day, uh, look to him for help in many of these linguistical works of translating uh, the Bible from Latin, or uh, they, they had translated it from Latin prior, but now translating it from the original Hebrew and Greek, and that sometimes Aramaic text as well. Now, it's an interesting story with him in that he's, he's a physician who the last four years of his life became a priest. So he left the doctorate, uh, and because he knew the languages so well, they said, hey, you should, you should be a priest because you, you're like the king of, of being able to do what we need to do, this interpreting of the scripture and translating and whatnot. Um, so he was given a copy of the original manuscripts. And you have to remember, most people at this time, when they heard the scripture, it was in church. It would be part of the Catholic Mass, and there would be portions read, there would be a liturgy done. So a lot of the stuff people would hear through, you know, year after year, time after time, but it's never expository into where you're going through the whole Bible in a year, the whole Bible ever, right? It's just simply a liturgical process in which you're hearing it. So Lenacre now, for the first time, is reading through all of the New Testament texts. Most people in this day would not have done that. So you're all, you're all fortunate to be able to read the New Testament, uh, you know, and most of the times we don't take advantage of that, but you are fortunate to have that at your disposal. Lenacre said this, though. After reading through the Gospels for the first time, he said this. Either this is not the Gospel, pointing to the manuscripts, or we are not Christians. Either this is not the Gospel, or we are not Christians. So you can only imagine the variance that had occurred with how Christians were living from what he was reading. Um, so it's a telling statement, and I think it's a statement that's no less true today, years after we have dozens of translations, that people still live in a way that's not reflective of the Gospels, of Christ's commands. Um, so let's, and I think mostly, primarily, this one of forgiveness is one where we really fall short as a church. But let's look at Lord's Day 51. This is from the Heidelberg Catechism. Again, the Catechism, we read it a lot, but it has to do with, uh, it's a teaching mechanism. It was primarily for youth to teach them uh, to be able to understand the Gospels. But it says this, what does the fifth petition mean? Answer, forgive us our debts. Let's just read this together. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors means because of Christ's blood, do not hold against us poor sinners that we are, any of the sins we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. Forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us to forgive our neighbors. And so we see in here 
in not only the prayer itself, but in the answer here in the catechism, that the prayer is a prayer not only of forgiveness, of God forgiving us, but it's a prayer asking us to help, for God to help us forgive, forgive others, and ultimately just to be in a place of forgiveness, to be in a heart and mind of forgiveness, that it's an attitude of heart and mind, as I said. Matthew 6.12, uh, New King James says it this way, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Uh, the NLT, the New Living Translation, says, and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sinned against us. Uh, the uh, Century uh, English Bible, or uh, I think this is the Century English Bible, the CEB we'll call it, forgive us the ways we have wronged you just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. So these are different ways this verse can be translated. And lastly, from the Amplified Version, which tries to give out the full nuances of the text, it says, And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, letting go of both the wrong and the resentment. And so there's an idea here of not only saying, Yes, brother, I forgive you, but of letting go of the anger and the resentment and the attitude of heart that would hinder our relationship with our brother and ultimately hinder our relationship with God. Um, So, Matthew, to quote uh, the text from Matthew again, 14 through 15, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, this is a tough verse for us because we're like, this puts, as some may see or think, this puts the, 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 the focus of forgiveness of sins upon us and, and not upon God. Um, but what I think is happening here is that this is evidence of whether God's grace has ultimately touched us, right? So if we're saying, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner, how we're going to know that that is true, that God's grace has truly touched your heart, is that ultimately you're going to be in a place of forgiveness. Because when you realize how much sin you've done against God, you're in a place to turn and be gracious. Calvin says this, here, uh, in speaking of this passage, here Christ only explains the reason why that condition was added, forgive us as we forgive. The reason is that God will not be ready to hear us unless we also show ourselves ready to grant forgiveness to those who have offended us. If we are not harder than iron, this exhortation ought to soften us and render us disposed to forgive offenses. Unless God pardon us every day many sins, we know that we are ruined in innumerable ways. And on no other condition does he admit us to pardon, but that we pardon our brethren whatever offenses they have committed against us. Those who refuse to forget the injuries which have been done to them devote themselves willingly and deliberately to destruction and knowingly prevent God from forgiving them. So if you were hoping for Calvin to make it easier, that verse easier for you, you'll be sad because he reaffirms what Jesus says there. That ultimately, having bitterness, having anger, having resentment towards our brother, now reading the gospel and seeing Jesus' words, is a, is a sin of commission. We are doing it, committing it, knowing it's wrong. 
And there's many ways in which we can sin. As I said, there's sins of commission, sins we commit. There's also sins of omission, things that we omit to do. Good, I know I should do, and I don't do it. Someone in need, I know I should help, and I don't. And then there's also just sins of ignorance, where we sin simply because we don't know we should have done something or should have not done something. But when, we're, when we... So, so there's many ways that, that sin is made possible. And that's why the scripture says to be on guard. Your adversary, the, Satan, right, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion seeking to whom he may devour. But when it's things that we're clearly committing, this is when we're in trouble, right? Things we clearly know that are wrong and we commit them is when uh, I would say we have the more serious of sin. And so a uh, heart of unforgiveness ultimately shows, and we know the command of Christ, it's showing that grace is lacking in us, that forgiveness is lacking toward us. There's a parable here of an unmerciful servant. And for, well, you know, let's, I was going to say for time's sake, I'll summarize it, but it's only 14 verses. So turn to Matthew 18 now. Uh, because I do think it's better if we read it to get the full nuances of what goes on here. So Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Jesus tells a parable that I think encapsulates this, this story or this, this theme. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall, I, how, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him his debt. But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down on his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when this fellow servant saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and they came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. You should have also you should not also have had compassion. Or, sorry, this is a question. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him into the, to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, if you, each of you to each of you, if each of you does not from his heart does not forgive his brothers his trespasses. So again, a very powerful story, a very 
scary story. And sometimes we try to downplay these stories, right? Sometimes we try to soften and say, well, he can't really mean what he says there. But again, it's not that the, the, the focal point of forgiveness is on me. But as I cry out to God for forgive me for all my sins, and I know the extent of them, and you know the extent of yours, right? Only God knows all the sins that you've committed, not only before you're a believer, but after. And if you told all those sins to every person in here, they'd probably never talk to you again, right? But God still hears you. God still loves you. And God works in your life. And so if God can can forgive you for for all sins, and ultimately all those sins were done against God, because they were done against God and his holy word. So ultimately every sin you've ever committed, the main offender has been God. There might be a secondary offender, right, that you offended someone else. But primarily, those sins were against God. And God not only has forgiven you, but he sent his son to die for you, right? He paid that debt. That's why we're saying, forgive us our debts. The one we've been commonly repeating is, forgive us our trespasses. That makes it a little broader, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But the term here is truly debts because it's trying to give a picture of you owe something. You have a debt to be paid. And we're saying, Lord, forgive me of that debt. Forgive me of that debt that I cannot pay. And that's why we accept Christ. We say, Christ, you paid my debt. You you lived the perfect life in my place. This is what we call imputed righteousness. And then you went to the cross and took on my sins. So our sin was imputed to Christ. He imputes or gives us his righteousness and takes our unrighteousness so that every lustful thought, every murder, every act of hatred and thievery was ultimately placed on a sinless Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And when we think of the depth of despair of one who knew no sin, doesn't know the guilt or shame of sin, in any way, and taking on the sin of all his people for all the sins they would ever commit for all of time. We can't begin to fathom the wrong that was done to Christ on the cross, the the suffering and pain and shame, as the scripture says, of the cross placed on Christ. So whatever someone else may do to us, it pales in comparison by what we've already done to Christ and what Christ has already forgiven us for. I'll close in this verse. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. The New King James translates this word charity because this word charity and love are really so intertwined that to show love is to show charity, is to be gracious, right? Um, And so often we make love this abstract thing, this emotion, not this act of being gracious and charitable toward each other. We become 
for those of you who grew up in the 80s, a theological gong show. Just banging this gong. If you guys remember this show, you just, they would just hit this big gong, right? And then people would go to answer and be like, gong. You know, you got their answer wrong. And I, and I think, if you don't know it, kids, look it up on YouTube. You know, but I think oftentimes that's what our churches can become. We're saying correct things, we're saying correct doctrine, and we're focused on just simply being right to be right without the correct aspect of love. And so if I can properly categorize and define for you the Trinity and the mystery of divine election and all these big terms, right? That's what people will look to, and that's what people will say, that guy's really a Christian, man. Gabe's okay at explaining that stuff, but that guy said it way better, right? So that guy's a better Christian, you know, or, or Gabe explained it better than, you know, this brother in the church here. He's a better Christian. But that's not how we're to measure ourselves. The scripture says if we do that without love, we're just up here gonging. We're up here clanging cymbals. We're up here like the kids that sometimes will come up on that drum afterwards just trying to you know, bang it and make noise. That's what our theology amounts to. That's what our words amount to if we're not actively forgiving, living in forgiveness, living in grace and charity to our brothers. I said I was done with verses, but I lied one more. Sorry. Forgive me for lying. Because... James says here, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, for mercy triumphs over judgment. Let us pray. Father, we pray right now, Lord, that you would not only forgive us of our sins, put us in a place that we would have a heart and a will to forgive others. May your grapes pour out so much that you take out all bitterness, that you take out all hatred, envy, slander, whatever it may be, and conform us to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.